didn't catch. I was trying. I think it's, is it a bikini kill shirt? I didn't catch it. It is. Actually. Okay. I saw the bikini yeah. part. <laughs> yeah, it's from the, uh, yeah. I went to go see him. Oh, God. I mean, everything before COVID is sort of blurry. I think it was two years ago uh-huh. when they did that, they did that reunion tour and it was, it was so badass. They were just great. Where Alice did Mack, you see them? The Palladium. They played a few nights at the Hollywood Palladium, which is just a, it's a great, place to go pre-covid to just be like in under someone's armpit during a punk show it was about they were just fantastic it was really good I, biggest merch yeah, line sorry, i've ever continue. seen i was gonna say biggest merch line i've ever seen ever like, i well two things there one what's the seating capacity of the palladium i've never been there good question it's an old big band place i mean i'm guessing it's probably god it's huge it's got to be about a thousand okay um, but it's just, a, it's an old, um, uh, literally big band place. So it was yeah. like an orchestra dance hall sort of thing. And, and, you know, now there's a lot of DJ stuff and the occasional punk show. The replacements played there when they got back together. Okay. It's that, that kind of place. It's a, it's a very, it's a very credible place, but you, you definitely, it'll be interesting to see how this one works post COVID. Cause you were just mashed up. With yeah, those. no, most definitely. I mean, well, and then you also said the biggest merch line of uh, one of the things I've done in my storied musical career at some point. Um, I don't know. Do you know great American music hall in San Francisco? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I sold merch there. I mean, on and off between tours and my own shit, you know, all the time. And I did three nights of the growlers. They did oh, right a night run. This is probably 2015. I don't know if you know, Alan Forbes, the poster artist. Um, he, uh, he'd like the black crows logo. He's been around forever. Okay. Um, he did the poster for that show and I was sitting next to him. I was doing their merch. Great American, I think is 1100 people each night. That band just in merchandise, each band that 15 to $17,000 a night. Wow. 1100 person capacity room. I mean, this line was longer than the line to get beer. It was longer than the line. Yeah. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never, this bikini kill show is the same thing. It was, um, kids lined up from before the show. And so I was like, all right, let's wait till after. And then I got in line after and everything was 10 bucks. Yeah. So it was genius too. It was like the t-shirt was 10 bucks. The, you know, the, the poster was 10 bucks. And so, and there was just, and by, and it was funny, actually, by the time I got up there, they were completely out of my size on everything. So I have a buddy that sort of works with them and I'm like, buy me a t-shirt. Of course. He, he, he did it sort of because yeah, it was, it was insane. It was great. I mean, merchandise sales. I mean, you know, it's such a huge part of bands income. I mean, you know, I was living in okay. a van for years and we didn't make dick playing shows. You made all your money sure. selling merch, sure. um, especially shirts. But you mentioned the $10 thing that instantly reminds you of kind of what Kid Rock did. Um, he was a year, you know, years ago, five, six, eight years ago, something like that. He did a tour where everything was the same price. Like a beer was five bucks. Tickets were 20. Like everything was the same. He took a huge chunk out of his own paycheck to do it. Um, so smart. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I get pissed when I go to see a band and it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's 125 for a hoodie or it's like, come on. You know, I mean, it's, it, there's a way to, um, you know, I think there's a way to make a profit off that. And then there's a way to like, you know, just when I was a kid, I couldn't afford it. 
fucking sixty dollar t shirt. <laughs> I feel bad for those kids. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. So let, let's start with you. I mean, it seems like yeah. you've been in the music game for a while, at least, you know, in and around it. Um, where are you from originally? Where are you now? <laughs> I'm 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 in the uh San Fernando Valley part okay, of Los yeah. Angeles. Uh, and I was born in the San Fernando Valley part of Los Angeles. So I'm, yeah. I'm one of the six natives that exists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I grew up, grew up out here, um, you know, just at the right time to, you know, dive into, you know, the punk rock thing as a little kid. And, and also, like, you know, I grew up on the radio. So, you know, as my friends know, I love Linda Ronstead records as much as I love X records. Yeah. And so. So were as a kid, were you playing music? Were you playing in bands? Were you doing any of that kind no, of stuff? No, I I I like everyone, I I played guitar as a kid and I always knew I wasn't that good and I didn't oh. really have a desire to do it beyond like that I thought kids that played instruments were cool. You know, and I, I kind of realized early on like I just wasn't you know, then I, I do think some people are just natural musicians, some people are natural cooks, some people are natural, you know, just actors. And, you know, and, you know, I, I, I probably could have learned, but I'm not at all disciplined. I'm the least disciplined person in the world. And I just, I was never drawn to play it. I was always drawn to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I took, I took guitar lessons and I can, I can play. I, I have a, few guitars sitting around the house. I haven't picked one up probably sure, in five yeah. years. Yeah. And I just, I've never want to ever hear me play and I'm just not that good. And it stresses me out. It's like the same thing with cooking. I can't cook. I suck at cooking. And yeah, I just, I literally can't do it. And people like, I know people that do it as sort of a stress release and nothing mm-hmm. makes me more anxious. Thousand percent. And I'll fuck it up and I'll fuck it up. And the same thing with, 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 with playing whenever I, you know, would try to bang out like a simple little, you know, punk tune or a country tune. I'd be like, it just doesn't sound right. And I don't want anyone to ever hear this. And, and so when I was a kid, but I've always been obsessed with records and, and music. And I remember the moment when I was a little kid, I was probably like 10 and I had all my records out. It was the only thing I've ever been organized with and sort of anal about. And I had them out on the floor, all sprawled out. And my dad walked away with one of his buddies and, and the, the guy said to me, he was like, oh, you should get a job in the music business. You get free records if you work in the music business. And I just went, sold. And that was it. That was when I was like, all right, somewhere there's people that get paid to do this. And I didn't mm-hmm. know how to or, you know, I didn't come from it in family. And, and uh, but I was just sort of single-minded on it and went like, all right, I want free records. And that was, well, and, and growing, I mean, growing up in the San Fernando Valley. And, and again, you, I mean, you said like in the punk rock time, I'm going to dial it down to let's say the late seventies, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, er, 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 for me, it was, um, like mid eighties. Okay, yeah. Most definitely got into it. Like, like I saw X for the first time in 82, uh, when I was like 14, 15 years old. And was is just that like, a thing where you grew up saying you saw X? Like, <laughs> Oh yeah, that was, that was then. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. it's like, you know, it's the same thing. I wasn't ever into sports. Um, meaning, meaning I didn't collect baseball cards. I didn't collect comic books. I didn't yeah. follow teams, but you know, there was real, real, real. And there, there, there still is, I think I'm just too old to, to know it, but there was real regional pride back then who came from LA and, yeah. and yeah, it didn't come. It didn't come cooler than X. Yeah, well, I, and I the reason I I mean I love years. You know when people talk about L A. I the L A. to me will 
you know, I live in SF and I'm from Jersey and right. I've been to LA a bunch, but LA to me. And when people talk about them, I always think of Tom Petty driving cross country, yeah. going into the phone booth, going into the, the, you know, the old school phone, you know, calling up the record labels and a, you, a dude like you on the other end. My <laughs> band used to fucking tour. We would tour LA. This is this how fucking desperate we were. We would tour LA. We would play, you know, like the smell or something like that. And um, I would go like to Sony records to war and I would leave just CDs outside in the bushes and shit. Right, right. Like 2012, you know, um, but you being the dude, maybe on the other side of that door, how do you get into the business side of it? You know, I, up in LA, was it, an, it was an easy thing to do? No, I, mean, I didn't know what to do. I, I just knew that I didn't have any interest other than music. And I, didn't go to college. I wasn't smart enough. Family didn't have money. You know, I was, and I wasn't motivated by any, I didn't want to be anything. I wanted to somehow work in music. And I had a, had a dad who was just amazing. And, you know, his, his sort of credo was, you know, if you're going to be a garbage collector, be the best garbage collector yeah. you can be and just do what you want. Like, don't ever like not do what you like for a living, you know, just, and so you kind of put it in my head that you could, but like, you know, I, I had the, my family was going to encourage me and, but I didn't know how to do it. My best friend from the time I was 13 is still uh, like my best friend from childhood. We're still amazing close as a, um, a, and that was the other part of me. It was a, a real guitar player and he's a fantastic uh, guitarist. Um, everything from jazz to folk played with, he played with Nora Jones for a bunch of years, just a, yeah wonderful wonderful writer but we grew up together and I, I was watching him play guitar and then you know i'm going home and going like, you know and he was just naturally and is just still probably the best guitarist i've ever known but his grandfather when we were kids his grandfather was a big composer and he had written um the music to the theme to gilligan's island oh wow and uh the music to the song it's the most wonderful time of the year and um his name is George Weil, a great composer and songwriter who's, who's long since passed. But, and my best friend is a guy named Adam Levy and Adam was going to a guitar school or music school and was taking lessons with this woman who worked at a music magazine that I'd never heard of a music trade magazine called Cashbox. And, uh, I was a billboard man and, and, she basically said, oh, we're looking for interns. And he was like, my friend is dying to get in the business. He'll be your intern. And literally that's how it happened. And I went for a one day a week internship and just kind of just kept going back every day and was like, I, you know, I wasn't getting paid. They were yeah. giving me lunch. Yeah. And I was like, I'll clean the toilets, whatever you want me to lunch do. Lunch is a lot. I did an internship. Oh, yeah. I did an internship at Electric Lady Studios, and I mean, oh, badass! And I was, and I was going, and I, but I was commuting in from Jersey, and I mean, they wouldn't even right. <laughs> cleaning, the cleaning the toilets would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It was it was a total like random, you know, Hollywood moment. That I don't know what happened anymore because I wasn't going to school. I was just out of high school. I wasn't going to college. I wasn't. I was just working for free, and then. I was there about, and I, and I decided at that point what I wanted to do, I should back up, what I figured my role was, so I didn't really know what people in the music business did. I knew I didn't have any talent and, um, you know, I, I wasn't really any good at anything, but I was like, okay, I can write. 
and I'd written for like school papers and I'd written for, you know, I was trying to freelance for the LA weekly at the time. I think I got one story printed with them and I, I liked writing. So I thought working with this magazine, I'll be, I'll be a music writer. And about three months in to this internship and I got to know everyone. And I think, you know, they were all really nice to me. And I think they were just like this, you know, this geeky kid that, is working for free and shows up every day. And yeah. I drove in like an hour to go to this place at the time. We don't have to pay them. And yeah, we don't have to pay them. And they were all really nice to me. And so one day it was really small staff. And one day the editor was walking around. It was just like this sort of classic scripted thing where he was just like, Oh, Greg, my, you know, my main writer is out sick. And it was a weekly magazine. It's like, I don't know what I do. I got so much to write. And I was just like, I'll do it, mister. Yeah. Give me something. He gave me like, he like tossed me the towel basically and said, all right, right. You know, about this radio station in Des Moines, Iowa. I can't remember what it was like something really bland. And I wrote it and he was like, okay. And they gave me something else. And I was just so excited. So then they hired me and I got hired into the, the company working, um, helping them put together their charts, which I had no idea what to do. And then a couple months later, I kept writing. I got hired into the editorial department and that's when I discovered I hated writing about music. And uh, I just I just didn't like, I, I did it for, it was almost three years. And it was at the end of it, I became, not because of talent or skills or anything like that, based on the fact this company paid really shitty wages. And as people were quitting, which was this very rapid, uh, like revolving door there, I, I got kept getting bumped up. So all of a sudden I was like this 20 year old editor yeah. of this magazine. And, you know, basically, you know, just because I would still do it for my base salary and it was a weekly and I was getting burned out. And I didn't really, I didn't like being critical about music, to be honest. I didn't think it was, I could be critical in my private life of something, but I thought it was sort of shitty to go out and say, Hey, that thing that really moves you, that music that really makes you weep and, and soundtracks your life, I, I don't like it. So I'm yeah. going to tell you. What. And I'm going to write about it and you're going to read about it. And now yeah. you're going to your own opinion. Yeah. It bummed me out. So I would never write bad reviews of people and they would kind of bum out of me. I'm like, it's not, you know, I mean, it, it'd be one thing if someone was, you know, writing about, you know, white supremacy or someone was writing about something really shitty to do with the human experience. But is someone writing about meeting a girl at a bar? It's like, it's not my place to tell them that's not what to do. So I didn't know what to do. And I was at this job and, and um, I decided I want to be an NR guy, like every asshole and, and didn't know how to do that. And again, another movie right there. Like, you know, like everyone was like, I think I have good taste and uh-huh. I, I can do this. And, and can you explain to people what, who are listening? Oh, you said A&R. Yeah, uh, it, that, it's it stood for artist and repertoire uh, at a record label or publisher. It now stands, I believe, for art, art artist and research. But it was basically the um, the person who either found and nurtured talent, or worked with talent that existed at the company, or usually, in my case, both. Like I worked with, I, I would sign people. Uh, I worked at a record company for a bunch of years, worked at Electra Records, and then I settled mostly in uh, music publishing, which is my sort of preferred. I like working with songwriters who are often the band, but uh, working um, as a publisher, you get to sort of work out outside the um, 
the lane of, of just making a record and putting it out and praying to God it does well because a songwriter can write for film. A songwriter could write for someone else. A songwriter can you know, write jingles, whatever. And I, and I like the ability to um, not be reliant on, because basically when I was an A&R guy for, at a record label, I was working by the seat of my pants. I didn't sign stuff that did, it, you know, that busted the gates open. It usually did pretty critically well. And if something did well, it was almost by accident. It was almost like, hey, that thing's a hit. Who would have thunk? You well, know? Can, can we break, if you don't mind, can we break this yeah. down even a little further? Sure. Um, the image in my mind and most people's mind who do know of an A&R guy or anyone who's ever played in a band mm. is the guy or the girl who's in the back of the club, who's like sipping on a, you know, probably, you know, a non-alcoholic beverage. He's waiting for the show to finish and the band is hoping that guy sees them and they sign them, you know, Weezer before yeah. anyone knew who Weezer was, right. yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Am I off on that? Just, I, I was smoking cigarettes and drinking shots Both. of whiskey, but yeah. Um, the same so thing, yeah. again, can you give us more, again, you named Electra Records, Fish mm -hmm. was assigned to Electra. Yeah. Um, can you, what time frame is this? Right? I was there, I went to work there, I was there from 96 to 2001. So you, again, so again, that job, part of that job, and correct me if I'm wrong, was you were out at night, you were seeing bands, yeah. you were looking yeah. literally for bands to sign. Yeah, and it was funny, it was in a time when, um, music was not really, um, I, I, the way I sort of look at it, like sort of every seven years, my tastes sort of match the public's and well, then seven years is a thing in the universe. That's a big, I know. Thing. And it's, I just sort of notice it's like every seven years, it sort of comes around and I get that one year where I'm like, I get what's happening out there and I'm like into it. And then the rest of the time around, I'm usually working with those bands I signed in that time or those artists I signed in that time. <laughs> Or uh, what I what I found I loved doing was I was working with people um, that I just adored. So like X, for example, when I went there, I mentioned earlier, like literally two of my favorite artists of all time are Linda Ronstadt and X. I mean, completely polar opposite, both electro artists. And at the time when I went there, um, it was it was a, it, there was a gig in between the writing gig and, and this. I worked at a company called ASCAP. And when I went to the record company, I said, I go, I'd like to, to work on an X project and, and, and Linda Ronstadt stuff. If, if, and they were like, all right. And I thought I was being this shrewd negotiator and going like, I have one final, you know, demand. And so um, I went there and I got to work with these two artists I love. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. So I certainly didn't sign either, but I got to work on records with them and, um, I sent a band called the old 97s who I've sure, yeah, yeah, worked yeah, with yeah. through the years and signed, uh, worked Remind with me, after. what's the lead guy's name? Remind Rhett me. Miller. Rhett Miller. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So, so let me ask you another question. Does the relationship go further or again, you know, you're talking about a time when people were buying CDs, right? So yeah. um, it was a different buying public. It was a different, yeah. it was a different public in general. Music right. played a different role in the public conscious in the late nineties than it does yeah. right now. Um, that being said, these things were sound like fucking hotcakes. If you were, you know, the Backstreet Boys or whatever, whatever. Did your relationship with the artists go? I mean, were you in the studio with these people? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what happens once the record goes out? Can you explain that? Sure. I mean, there's there's two kinds of A and R. Well, there's probably several types of A and R yeah. people. There's two that I'll broadly define, and one is um, 
and probably the only kind that should exist is the is the cat who can who can grab the guitar and you know literally sit there and work out musical ideas with them and and uh you know be sort of a Svengali in the studio um I fell more into or completely into the category of um every artist I've ever worked with and to this day I've never worked with anyone who wasn't already on the path and knew what they wanted to be. I never worked with anybody who needed to be defined. I worked with people who were very young. Like I, when I signed the 97s, you know, they were together maybe four or five years as a band. They oh. put out a couple indies. They were very young and raw, but they were absolutely on their path. And so my job, uh, whereas some A&R people get really into a deep, deep creative role of, you know, helping arrange songs and, you know, Mine was really just, it's been keeping artists and songwriters on the path they're already on and trying to keep them from getting distracted and trying to, you know, kind of, I've not been able to work. I haven't signed a lot either. I signed maybe a couple of things a year and um, it's always, you know, it's sort of like, it's like, you know, it's falling in love. You you meet someone and you're like, oh my God, I completely get you. And, you know, I think, I, you know, I still work with everyone I've ever signed, no matter what company, because you're sort of you know, you, you, if it works right, you become part of their, 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 their clan, you know, they become your yeah. squad. And, and, and so, but yeah, so we'd go in and like with the 97s, there would be like, you know, I'd get, Rhett would you know give me 40 songs and, you know, maybe I'd help them narrow it down to 20 and then he would narrow it down to 12. Sure. And, you know, you'd suggest producers, you know, I love matchmaking. You suggest, you know, musicians, if it's not a band. Is it or matchmaking? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Matchmaking like you. So it's, you know, in a case of, you know, like either finding a producer that you think would also help them on this journey or they need a, an additional musician in the case of the 97s. I think any additional musician was someone they knew or they had worked with in their, in their past. But like I might work with a solo artist that, you know, needs a bass player, needs a string arrangement. And yeah. so you, you work on that, but but in, it, I have to say, like, you know, I can't take any creative credit for anyone I've worked with because they've all really had, you know, they've they've had to be musicians. They've, they've yeah. There hasn't been an option, you know, and they've, they've known, they knew what road they were on. And so it was fun just to help them with that. And then when the record comes out, um, you know, you become their their champion in the label along with, you know, I was very lucky to have be surrounded by really great people who were publicists and product managers and radio people who really championed my bands and helped keep them on the label. Um, even if they didn't break the bank. Uh, and it was, it's, it's really, it's really fun. I just, you know, it's the, um, like I said, I'm, it not sound really corny about it, but I'm just a, I'm, I'm a fan of records. And, and so my favorite part was, and is, is going to the studio and watching it be created, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not the guy who jumps in and goes, give me the guitar. This is, course, yeah. this is what you gotta play because, yeah, you know right. one of yeah, one of my favorite you know behind the music rock and roll moments of all time, specifically about talking about what we're talking about uh, when Blind Melon signed with Capitol Records, yeah. the famous story about they signed on the top of the Capitol Records building, right, right, yeah. and Hoon was ass naked, his cock just flapping in the wind, <laughs> um, you know. So it's like you know there was a time where this was the thing, but Rivers Cuomo, yeah. I forget he talked, and I brought up Weezer earlier because he talked about it, some interview or something. 
he had talked about their process of getting signed um, and how, again, they were LA band. They were playing the clubs. No one really knew who the fuck they were. And then, sure. they, you know, he talks about the A&R guy and how, you know, I think they eventually signed with Geffen, right? Geffen, yeah. Yeah. And the blue album came out with Geffen. Um, yeah, but I mean, who you know, these records popping, no one fucking knows. I mean, I I look at the Fleet Foxes, you know, right. could you have predicted when that first record came out that the Fleet Foxes would be, you know, well, oh, could you write about the new Fleet Foxes record today? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I never knew, and I was I was like, I'm you know, I'm really not doing good from a next job interview here, but I was I was never good at picking singles. Uh-huh. I never liked dealing with touring. I didn't like dealing with publicity. Was touring I, part of your job response? No, but I mean, but like the, all the aspects that came out when a record happened. And, uh, but even like the artwork, when the artwork came, like, I would be like, hey, someone showed me something. I'm like, that's cool. I'm like, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. I didn't care. I loved watching it come together. And I love my favorite thing, which, you know, I don't think is a lost art. I think it's just sort of uh, resting for a minute, but was sequencing. I loved sequencing uh, the album. The songs, you mean, on the record? The songs, yeah. And, right. like, usually, you know, did that almost, you know, every time in collaboration with a band or watched a band do it and just uh, loved the process. But I always loved, like, telling that story, like, finding all the songs come together and having them sort of being like, all right, we got your next 45 minutes, we got your next half hour, and this is how it's going to go, and sort of soundtracking someone's experience through that. Which and what was, was the politics of Electra Records then? Were they owned by anyone or what? what, what yeah, they were a, a Warner company. Okay. And um, it was right at the time when AOL bought us. So it was really weird. So we were owned by, we all got, like we all had AOL email kind yeah, of thing. For sure. It was very strange, but it was like when you're saying it was funny, there was a, um, there was a lot more courtship happening for and especially like bands and things like that which was really fun so with the 97s they were all sports guys so i remember we hooked them we'd, we'd go to um you know dodger games or they were you know huge hockey guys so yeah. we'd get them dallas stars tickets and yeah and i remember there was a there was a bunch of labels after them at the time and i really connected with these guys and still am they're just they're just my brothers and i remember we we're having everything was you know it was like great dates everything was working out like yeah. as planned, you know, it's like the movie where they have the caper and, and it actually, and it goes well. And so we're, I remember, so I remember there was one point when um, we had gone and we'd taken to a Dodger game and we, they were just excited to be at the Dodger game. And all of a sudden someone came up and we worked it out with a buddy of ours and they got to walk down to the field and, oh, and nice. like Mike Piazza. And, and then they hand them all like Dodger caps and oh, yeah. you know, we're smoking joints and listening to the new Metallica in the van yeah. and drinking beer. And it was like, everything was perfect. And, you know, it was kind of one of those like, yeah, okay, this is going good. And then I remember there was another label, I can't remember what it was, who was like, okay, we got to do something like that. And they brought them to like a Laker game, I think. And then they had, they had like really shitty, like nosebleed tickets. And then they, the, uh, they and our person went, wait, 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 the thing's coming. They were, these guys are now spoiled at this point. And like, well, this experience isn't as good as oh, the yeah. last one. And the, 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 the person goes like, points to the, the scoreboard and like, watch, watch, watch. And sure, it comes up. It's like, you know, the Lakers welcome the old 97s and then proceeds to spell like all their names wrong. And so they're calling me like from the van on the way home going like, you won. I was like, yes. That's dope. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it I was mean, like the a six month courtship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the music world is, it's fascinating. Even, even if you could just be a fly on the wall, like the bands I played in, you know, we were, we never got to the, 
the theater level, but we were headlining the clubs around the country and things like that. But through that, I met some dope people. And when you meet dope people, you get into some pretty crazy situations. And when you go to the backstage of some of these venues around the world, there's some like hidden places and things. So I got a warp tour. This is like 2013. Right. And my buddy is the DJ for Riff Raff. Riff Raff's on Warp Tour, okay? I don't yep. know if you know Riff Raff. Yep. And he got, he's like, he texts me that day. He's like, dude, we're playing Shoreline Amphitheater Mountain View. He's like, come on down. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll, whatever. Just hang out with me for the day. I go to, I, the only time I'd ever been to Warp Tour was, I, mean, it's, it was like I saw MXPX, you know, when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Get there, hanging out on the bus, smoking weed, chilling out the whole day. Riff Raff sets at like 4.30. He brings me backstage at Shoreline. And backstage behind Shoreline, FYI, if you don't know, Shoreline Amphitheater, from a bird's eye point of view, is actually the steely face from the Grateful Dead. Um, Bill oh, Graham right. built right. it. I didn't know that, actually. Yes. Yeah, Bill Graham built it that way. Yep. So, of course, there's going to be like hidden rooms. So, there's a hidden weed smoking room in the back. It's like literally under a bridge behind a pillar. So, we're back there. And all of a sudden, my buddy's like, dude, Riff's going to come on. He's like, you know, hang out backstage. All of a sudden, we're hanging out. He's like, he calls me from the microphone. He's like, yo, from the DJ booth. He's like, yo, we're going to have a fucking guy come out. I'm like, what? Calls out my name. All of a sudden, I'm in front of 10,000 people. I'm no one. I'm literally no one. I'm just a dude hanging out in the entourage. And they're like passing blunts around. I'm looking at, to me, I'm a musician. I'm like, oh. I'm like, I'm looking at 10,000. None of them are pay- looking at me. But I'm looking at 10,000 people. I'm like, if I this will never happen again. I'm like, even if I don't play my own music, I'm here. I see it. (laughs) I'm on the stage. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. So where did this lead you then after the electric records? You said 2001 ish. 2001. I I then went back to, I was working at a place called ASCAP, which is like publishing. Music publishing, they essentially, tracks, right? Yeah, exactly. They pay they pay songwriters and publishers for when they're played on the radio, and I was running um, their creative department then. So it was back then. We do a lot of showcases. We do a lot of, and that was sort of how I got my in our job is we we champion bands or artists or writers and try to get them deals. And after a while, you know, it was like I was getting enough stuff, I guess, on the boards that I started to get some offers to go do. Um, and R, and then I worked at a label, and though I loved being in the studio, and I loved like you know I got to work with some of my favorite artists. It was also much like the the writing, the journalism, I should say. It was it was stressful because I knew I wasn't um, I, I I wasn't the kind of guy who's uh, could find hits. I always I always admired those people that could go out and like literally just find hits. I knew I'd find stuff Clyde I'd like. Clyde Davis, obviously, being probably the most famous, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and there's, and I, I work with so many people who just like can really recognize like a trend and really recognize that something will sound good on the radio. And and I, you know, I I, I lucked out a few times where I I worked with things that sort of started to do well in in those areas, but it was always like I said, always kind of by accident. And so right at the time when I was talking about like that seven year cycle, um, you know, I was in there and at that point, like everything that was happening was sort of like Limp Bizkit and, and Creed and, you know, again, not to be critical, just stuff I didn't really understand. Sure. Stuff. I remember one point my boss saying to me, like, you know, stop bringing me this 
alt country stuff. I need you to bring me the next Limp Biscuit. And I was like, fuck, I wouldn't have found Limp Biscuit. How am I supposed to find the next one? You know, and I and uh, we weren't in Tallahassee, Florida, or Jacksonville. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, you know, I was, I, and, I, and I liked stuff. I was, I was out there, but it wasn't really selling that well. So I started working more with like people that were already on the label and making records with them, and that was really a blast. And then, just quite honestly, after six years, they were kind of like, "All right, that was a nice little experiment." And I was like, "Wow, what do what do I do now?" And so this place ASCAP called me and I went back there for a bunch of years and I realized I loved working in publishing. And so since then, since 2008, 2009, I've been working in music publishing and I've been really, like, I've been really lucky to have a job all these years and I love doing it. But with, with, um, with publishing, I get to um, work with a lot of different writers and a lot of different areas and, and still it's all stuff I love. And though, I want all their individual records to do well. I could have a successful writer as a publisher and not really have to worry about one record doing well. Of course. You know, a good sync, a good a co-write, a good something can really... A song you know, on Frozen. Boom. Could make, but it can, you know, really make it a profitable deal for the company. And it lets me sort of, you know, work in the areas of art that I understand and, you know, I'm a fan of. So it's been so, okay. Well, well, two things. Um, one, well, both specific to the music publishing world. It seemed like you were through. You worked through the Napster era. So I mean, yeah, you yeah. probably saw. I mean, yeah. you know, we're still the pieces are still falling down from the sky. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's weird. And I was actually working with Metallica then, or specifically Lars. Again, Lars so you said time. Metallica twice. I have to say it. Right. There's three bands off the top of my head that I feel like I'm just never going to get a chance to see. I'm going to fuck it up every time. <laughs> Billy Joel, even though he plays MSG every month. Um, I never saw Neil Young and I feel like I'm never going to get uh -oh. to see him and Metallica. I fucked up seeing Metallica and they're an SF band. Yeah. It's funny. I saw them at the, and it was funny. I wasn't a Metallica fan. I didn't, I didn't dislike him, but I was just, I, I liked sort of country rock and punk rock and, and I was pretty limited, especially when I was a kid. And I was, Lars, Metallica was sort of on a little bit of a break. It was right about the time they were filming that movie, Some Kind of Monster. That made oh, yeah. Break. <laughs> and Lars had started a, a, a JV, a joint venture with Elektra called The Record Company at his own label. And so they just said to me, like, all right, you're going to be like the Elektra guy who deals with the A&R guy and the general manager of this label. So I became their sort of Elektra conduit. And so I was going to San Francisco a lot and hanging out with Lars and it was really, really fun. And I remember this one time being out with, with him and we were in New York with a band that he had just signed and all getting pretty blasted. Yeah. And I remember Lars turned to me and he was like, you're pretty excited to be working with, with Metallica, you big Metallica fan. And I went like, I'm drunk. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, and he kind of looks at me. He's like, "What's your favorite Metallica song?" And <laughs> Good. I panicked. <laughs> I panicked, and I went, "Enter Sandman." Of course, of course. And he went, he went, "What's your second favorite Metallica song?" And I panicked and using you know humor as a defense mechanism, which I've always done. I went, uh, "Sister Christian." <laughs> and he stopped. And in that moment, I went, "Oh fuck, I'm going to get fired." And he started laughing, and we were, and he went, "Tell me what you know about metal." And I was like. Not much. I, I didn't know much about metal at the time. 
And I remember he was like, you know, and he was like, well, like, yeah, what do you think of Merciful Fate? I'm like, mm, I don't know him. What do you think about Motorhead? I'm like, I know Ace of Spades. You know, I was like, and so the next day or two days later, whenever I got back to LA, then again, this is like 97, 98. Yeah. I showed up and there's a box in, on my desk about Yay Big with like a hundred metal CDs in it. And he was like, here's your education. And that's how I sort of got into metal. Was, that's was fucking really, that's, like, that's great. That's dope. And yeah. so, uh, but it was, it was pretty funny, but I spent a lot of time in San Francisco then. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, really he's spotted around. My buddy plays, you know, he's playing before COVID, you know, he was playing out. Lars is always out of the clubs. Um, yeah. he's hanging out. He's usually with a, a, you know, a good looking woman. And, uh, he's just, he's always out. I think his son's a musician too. Um, right. Time we were playing and this is not Laura. I was playing, a, I mean, speaking of SF a couple of years ago, I was playing a blues jam and fucking in walks completely completely wasted uh trey cool and right. my buddy was running the jam and he was the drummer also and i'm playing you know 12 bar blues scales end up playing four songs with trey cool he looks at me he takes a selfie with me with his phone uh <laughs> <Get on. laughs> that's dope though yeah i mean but it's cool i mean these dudes even i mean you know lars ulrich has a nine figure art collection but the dude is still out there you know nicest guy and that's what i mean it's always it's funny i never really want to meet people i'm either really big fans of yeah or you know just because you're always you don't always want to get disappointed and someone like lars was just you know larger than life and it was right like as you referenced it was right as the napster stuff was going on so all of a sudden you know he's being recognized by moms in the grocery store i mean he's you know everywhere at the time and just you couldn't be a nicer, more generous, you know, sweet guy. And I, I really I haven't seen him in years and years and years, but he was um, just, yeah, just the the, the, the the nicest guy. And he was right about everything he said about Napster at the time. He was right that, you know, and they, they, the, the thing that, you know, sort of killed him is everyone sort of turned on him saying, isn't Metallica have enough money? And that was really, you know, stoked by the fires by the people that were making money off, off this, and decided that musicians could only cap out at a certain point. And it's like, you know, fuck that. And his whole thing was like, you know, they're gonna, you know, make it so we don't get paid if we don't watch out. And now a stream on Spotify is worth point oh 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 three cents because artists make enough money. You know, everyone thinks that if you're a musician, you're you you got a jacuzzi on your on your bus and. And so he really was ringing that warning bell and, and, but it is to your point, you know, the, the business has completely shifted in the time I've been in it, you know, from something that was based on physical material to something that's based on, you know, streaming and syncing now. Mm-hmm. So let's fast forward the clock a little bit then yeah. with speaking within the music publishing world mm-hmm. off the top of your head. I mean, what are, Obviously, the physical format has completely not been wiped out, but you know, again, but we're a world of trends. So now you could buy vinyl records, and those are super popular. I mean, I go to right, Amoeba yeah. Rec. I live two blocks from Amoeba. I can go there, and I mean, they're selling yeah. vinyl left. No, vinyl's doing great, which I love. I mean, I, I, I look. I think the vinyl thing comes down to simply the the experience. I mean, I think it comes down to two things. I think when you're a kid, showing off your record collection sort of defines who you are. Someone come in and see your CDs, see your stack. And I think vinyl does that in, in a way that people tend not to really want to let me see what's in your, 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 well, now there's not, now everything streams. So let me, let me, let me see what you've shazammed lately. I don't think happens that much. And so it gives, 
I think kids a way to set up their identity. When you walk in your room, they see you see a bunch of their vinyl sitting there and go like, "Okay, you're goth. Okay, you're punk. Okay, you're metal kid. Okay, you're a jam kid. Okay, you're." It helps define that. But more importantly, I think um, vinyl. You know, and I'm 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 sitting in a vinyl room now, yeah. so I'm obviously I'm a, I'm a I'm a vinyl collector. But it it the experience, and I love both. I have I have everything in my house but a CD player, meaning I. I either stream music or I play vinyl. And when I stream, which I do a lot, like I'm not anti-stream, but when I stream, it tends to be background music as to whatever I'm doing. Friends over, I'm cleaning the house, sure. I'm reading a book, I'm you know usually cleaning or I'm doing some now that I'm home, you know, I'm like, oh shit, I just feel like putting on music as background, which is essential to me. I, I need to have music on all the time. Whereas vinyl is instead of like passive listening, it's really active listening. And when you put on vinyl, you're, you're getting into the experience with them. You're getting into the, the movie they've created for you, the 45 minute experience, the 28 minute experience, whatever it is. And you're, you're usually looking at an album cover, you're focused in because in you know about 15 minutes, that side's gonna end and you either gotta flip it over or put something else on. And I think there's something about, you know, for, you know, the, the 15 years prior, and I get it, the rock star was this, this thing, was, was your phone. And it was more about the delivery system rather than the content. For me, too. It was like, holy shit, this is a fork and it's a Bluetooth speaker? This is awesome, you know? And then when that sort of wore off and it's sort of the novelty of, you know, and it was novelty that you could have a speaker and a pen, <laughs> you know, it came back to fidelity a bit and uh people not wanting as compressed sounds and but more so i think just the experience of oh shit you wrote a song and you know you poured your your life into it i'm gonna dig into this and and you know and like anybody like sometimes people are into listening to singles and i do that too and sometimes you just want to hear songs and you know it's like it's like i would say that it's like the youtube thing when when the youtube phenomenon ended which is like you didn't see the simpsons well you just got to see this two minute scene i'm going to send it to you we still do that and i still do that but sometimes you want to watch the whole episode and that's what i think albums do i think sometimes you want to watch the whole movie and and when you do it's and i think it's i think it's fucking beautiful that that it's not a fad that that vinyls continue it's not ever going to be the thing that finances the music business no it's certainly not it's not ever gonna be that but it's it's the only um part of the music business that's that's singly steadily increased for like the past 20 years well a couple things come to mind you know immediately I mean, shed a little more light you know a thing you hear a lot about is the 365 deal mm -hmm. but yet again people don't unless you have one you don't really know what the mechanics behind it are um right. before i before you answer the you're talking to a dude who's seen fish over a hundred times right yeah. so when i see fish i buy the poster if right. i can get it before it sells out you know, Fish gives me on my ticket stub a download code where after the show, three hours after the show, I can download a full soundboard mix of the entire show. So right. bands are ever evolving to plea. We're talking in a time where, you know, people listening to this in the future, Kings of Leon just released a, what is the NFT? Are you, I don't right, know yeah. if you're, so yeah. these things are happening so quickly. Yeah. How do you see it evolving? How did you see it evolve? I don't, well, I, it was funny. I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday. I'm 
totally like I'm not one of these guys that's like, and it was better then. Of course. It's supposed to evolve. It's supposed to change. We, we had on Bob left sets. We already talked about that. Don't worry. Yeah, but we, we, yeah, we, we, we like we, people talk about the music business like it's been around since the beginning of time, like books. Books have. Music is really a post-World War II business that really came into its own in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And, you know, like, and then at the time of the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, later Sinatra really became an album business and fucking went through the roof in the 70s, you know, in the in the Fleetwood Mac, Eagles, Linda Ronstadt. Album-oriented uh, rock and roll. Yeah. And it became, an, you know, the reason the Beatles, you know, the Beatles' entire recording career was eight years. A lot of people don't know that. And a big part of that was there wasn't a lot of places they could play. So they went up playing like, you know, baseball stadiums. So a tour on an album would be, you know, 10 dates and then they'd go back and record another album. And the seventies really brought us the arena tour, the outdoor tour, the, you know, the fish size touring. Well, great. Let's use grateful dead. Grateful dead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it became this thing where it became a really profitable business and, you know, like, look, it's, you know, people inherently, I don't think like change. And, you know, when all of a sudden, you know, when downloading was coming out, like I said, Lars was inherently, not inherently, it was a hundred percent right that like, you know, this is not good economically if this is what you do for a living. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely should be credited for that. But and I was sort of, you know, taking the stance of like, it's illegal and you can't do that with my hands on, on my hips. And, and I was right. The, the meaning it was illegal. You couldn't illegally download. That was against the law and, and it wasn't right to these poor musicians. And, but the reality was that you, you couldn't put the genie back in the bottle once mm -hmm. downloading happened and people started to look and what you were just saying about your fish experience, I think is really important. Because people started to look at, you know, then the music business did, you know, one of the most idiotic moves that any business could do. And they were like, how are we going to do this? We'll sue kids that are downloading music, effectively making it the most punk rock thing you could do. Literally suing. I, I remember I yeah. remember reading about I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. maybe a little younger than you, but I remember reading about it. So like a girl in Arkansas was getting sued for like, you know, half a million yeah. dollars. Yeah. Idiot. It made me want to download music. It was like, fuck you guys. And this is, this is really awful. And then, um, so people started to associate, you know, uh, you know, all these record execs that, you know, just look like Dick Cheney, you know, that were just like, you know, basically doomsday device, you know, and, and that's the criminal part because the ones that got, you know, music companies have had dips in profit. Any musicians business, a business. right so they've had dips in profit over years musicians have had because of this have had like complete you know like inability to eat yeah you know and and but when like all downloading started to happen it was like you know people were like okay music is now free we're still willing to pay for books we're still willing to pay for movies we're still willing to pay to, you know, go into a museum. Every other art form was still valid to pay for, but music suddenly became free. But what I've seen over the years is when there is a direct fan connection, that people will support the art. Definitely. That people started to view music as being funneled through the most corporate, they weren't entirely wrong, the most corporate entity that could be. And what they didn't realize is, but that, that musician who doesn't have to like, you know, worry about how they're going to eat can focus on their music if they're supported by an industry that supports them. And when 
downloading started, it just went crazy. The music business fucked up by suing, you know, suing music, suing uh, fans. Fans rebelled by just exclusively, you know, uh, downloading at the time music, you know, obviously now streaming. And the people that got, like, everyone figured out how to profit off it, except the, the songwriter and the musicians who were getting literally pittance on a, you know, you, everyone's read the stories about how, you know, Pharrell wound up making from streaming, you know, like $10,000 or something like that, because it was, it was like, what, you know, it's just, it's, and, the, and, well, and then it also literally flipped the whole business model upside down where it used to be you, a band would tour to promote the record. Mm-hmm. Now a band just makes a record to go on tour because now they need to go on tour to make money. They have to have an excuse to go on tour. Yeah. And it's just, you know, and that's where the money is. I mean, again, a dude who'd been playing, made my living for years living in a fucking van, you know, sure. it's what it is. It's just, that's how you make money nowadays on the road. But again, and not to make it a fish thing, but any band can do this where you're another example, Dr. Dog. I'm a huge Dr. Dog fan. I've been supporting that band since, you know, 2004 or whatever. Um, I'm going to go to every show, but they're a band where I think about this. It's the, it's the thousand fan rule where you need a thousand fans spending a hundred bucks a year on your product, right? That's the, that's a hundred thousand dollars a year kind of, you know, thing. Um, And that's very tangible, but beans now have to up it up another level. You got to be on Twitter. You got to be on fucking Instagram. You got to, I mean, you know, Instagram wasn't around. It's all, it's, it's all like one of the, one of humankind's biggest failings is we all think that the moment we're, and we're all guilty of this, literally, I think every human is guilty of this. We think the moment we're in is it. Of course. This is where it ends. Yeah. And this is what, and that's why people go like, okay. And I remember there was some president, I don't know if it was like Herbert Hoover or Rockefeller or something, that actually wanted to shut down the patent office. It was the same story. Cause he's like, we got cars, we got electricity, we got running water and plumbing, like shut down the patent office. There's nothing left to be invented. And so for music, I don't know what it's going to be. I have no fucking idea. There's, you know, the, the kid's probably eight right now. That's going to, you know, invent the next wave of what happens. I wouldn't have predicted downloading. I wouldn't have predicted streaming when I started off. I think it's, it's awesome that it's evolving. And the problem is, is I'm not against the evolution of this. I'm against the, the, the business sort of fucking it up, you know? And that's the whole thing is like, had, had the business just embraced Napster when it came out and said, all right, you guys can all do this. We're charging you 15 bucks a pop for a subscription to it. I think every kid in the world would have paid 15 bucks a month to like have unlimited streaming to everything they wanted, not just have to search for torrents. You could have really put that genie or helped that genie in the bottle kind of situation I back then. Instead, some idiot went, oh, let's sue, let's sue that girl. She downloaded a, you know, she downloaded a fish tune. Let's yeah. sue her, make a point of her. And so, you know, it's supposed to keep evolving and, you know, and it will, and there will be something different. And I, I have no idea what it is. I just keep holding on by the seat of my pants and, and just, I just rely on the fact that like, all right, I think I know songs. I think I know musicians and writers and they, you know, so I deal with them and they're always going to create. And the mode that, that it goes out to people will be something completely different, you know? And, you know, and, and, and every time, the one thing I will say, like everything that's proved revolutionary in the in the time I've been in the business, be it you know YouTube, be it you know uh, a Napster idea, anything like that, has 
no one's known. It's just all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, some band did something and it worked. Let's all jump on that. You know, like I would say that same thing with bands, like, you know, any band that's become, you know, era defining, be it Nirvana, no doubt. I'm trying to think of any Adele, you know, now the music business sits back and pats itself on the back and goes, yeah, we, we did that. It's like, no, you didn't. There's always been like great managers, great marketing people, great people in these companies but it's usually like catches everyone by surprise, you know, when something really takes off, like, you know, the Nirvana thing was building and building and building and building. And I, I remember, you know, loving that when that was happening, watching it happen. But what the music business is good at is pouring gasoline on a fire that's already going. <laughs> and that's what happened. You know, the, these kids went, fuck, yeah, this is this is our punk rock to reaction to what's happening right now. And here's this tremendous songer and this tremendous band who sounds like nothing else we're hearing. And the music business went like, oh shit, we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, pour gas on that fire and make that fire bigger and bigger and bigger. But I don't think anybody thought it was gonna be as big. Well, oh, let me rephrase that. There were individuals that thought it was gonna be that big, but corporations aren't people. Yeah, no fucking corporations. <laughs> Um, I mean, Nirvana is one of those things that again, that was before my time, you know, but obviously i'm a huge fan of the band to think that could ever happen again i don't know what in the sense of just i've heard people say yes i remember at one point like i hope it does yeah i remember people like talking to a friend of mine who was like oh god superhero movies played themselves out you know like after after the the uh the the nolan batmans was like because they stopped like they started doing them they stopped something like those are done and then they become massive and people say slasher films are done. And then all of a sudden someone makes a big slasher. Yeah, film. No, maybe I'm not maybe what I'm saying is no, 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 no. I think what I'm saying more about it, not as an art form of rock and roll, it, it will always be there. I think of just, you know, the right place, the right fucking time. You see the buzz was building the, but it was just man, Nirvana. And nowadays it's like, if you're not, the first record a hit off the gate it's like you're a fucking failure um yeah. you know are bands even allowed to develop anymore i don't yeah. know on the well, major record label side i'm not sure how that development works this was the thing i mean it, 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 this is the thing we we all and i'm talking when i say we i'm talking about me and this sort of this we all have selective memory like i look back at the 90s and i'm just like oh God, it was perfect then. And then a friend of mine around me was like, no, we were as miserable as we are now. Yes. We're like, can you believe this band got signed? Or can you believe this band became big? And there's no good music anymore. And you, you always cry about that. You always, yeah. you, that's what I mean. It's like, we think the moment we're in is it. And and it's always proved wrong. And there's always, I, I, I truly believe like great art will always exist. The, the problem is, is there's certain times where the, it, the business catches up with it and you have something that happened. I mean, one of, one of the stories that you, you, you'll relate to when I was at Electra and fish were on the label and um, they wanted to drop the band because they'd never sold a lot of records. None. And they were, I can't remember the records that were coming out then. You remember, but, they, but you'll probably know about this event, but they were doing uh, fish fest yeah 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 not yeah and well can you give me a year if you give me a year I'll it was it. probably this was probably like 97 96 yeah 97. so they were doing by that time they were they were able to draw ninety thousand people for a three-day festival in the woods of Maine. and and i remember they were doing a thing it was at the woodstock um grounds I believe. it was either lemon wheel or uh the great went yeah and so they went and there was like three days of just sold and i remember our company was completely taken by surprise 
Like they were like, but this really? band absolutely. And I remember the um, a bunch of people from the company taking a helicopter there and just seeing that view of the fans. And then the next day, Fish became a priority for the label. No shit. They had no no. I and mean, like I said, there were individuals there. Sure, yeah, yeah. The band, you know, A&R people, marketing people who knew how big it was, but as a corporation, they were looking at these ledgers and like this band selling like. 100,000 records, 150,000 records. Yeah, if that, which then was a complete, you know, disaster. That was a failure of a sales figure. Totally. And then they, they were all of a sudden like, oh, shit. And that's what I mean. It was like the, the, the public made this band big. And that could certainly happen again. It's like now the problem is, is we're more distracted by a lot of other things. Of course. You know, now you've got so much coming at you at all moments that it's hard to um, where then there weren't that many records coming out. Now, anybody that has a Mac for better or worse can make an album. Of course. You know, back then you needed to like only certain people can make records that could afford to go into a studio. And so that's the one thing that like, you know, I'm not necessarily the like, awesome. Everyone can, can do this because everyone does. And everyone sort of clogs up the airwaves and becomes a lot of white noise. But yeah, that was a one. Absolutely. No one, the corporation didn't know fish were as big as they were until they found out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, people get pissed off when I talk fish on the podcast, uh, but yeah, fish. Uh, I mean, at that point they were selling at MSG four nights in a row. I mean, f- again, fish is a phenomenon. I don't, again, I don't know if we're ever going to see a band like fish ever again. Um, I don't know if that it's that scale. I mean, it's just so grand. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. It's just crazy. Life is crazy. Where do you see it all going? I mean, you have any predictions? What do you, what are your future thoughts? I, you know, I don't, I don't have any predictions because live I, music will come back. We'll be back in clubs. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No live music will come back. I don't, but as far as, I mean, just what I was saying earlier, my only prediction is it's, is, is music's never failed me and it's never failed us. And Though, yeah, there may be a lot less things happening now because there's a lot more things asking for our money. You know, I mean, video games certainly haven't dipped at all. They've only gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Again, another great revenue for songwriters and for composers. Absolutely. Video game, oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are you kidding? No, and it's like, but it's, but I, I, I'm just a firm believer, I've yet to be proved wrong that, you know, that, you know, I mean, Adele, was the fastest selling 10 million records, 10 million record in history. It hit 10 million records. Oh, is that, is that true? I didn't know that. Okay. And that was when things were bad, you know, that was, you know, in the, in the early two thousands. And when something comes and resonates with people, it resonates. And I think the, um, you know, the idea of, like I said, when Nirvana happened, we didn't know we were waiting for Nirvana. Nirvana just came along when, you know, Adele happened. We didn't know we were waiting for Adele. Adele just happened. And there's reasons that things resonate. And I have absolute like belief. It's, 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 it's music. It's like, it will always exist. And there'll always be someone who does something better. And I love, even when I don't necessarily understand what's happening, I fucking love it because people didn't understand punk rock when I like that. And it's not all made for me. It's all not made for you. It's all not made for. And so you get to a point where, where we don't necessarily understand what's happening. And I think that's fucking awesome. We're not supposed to. Without yeah. a doubt. And when you pull the camera back, music is an art form. And art forms go through ebbs and flows of popular awareness. You know, Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure when, you know, Pollock was painting, they were probably like, oh, this has been done before. You know, we already have, you know. Oh, yeah. 
Michelangelo. Yeah, and when Rothko was doing it. I mean, there's always going to be Basquiat. Like you know, I mean, look at what what an influence that became. But it was just like that was not conventional art to someone who looked down their nose at it. You know, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom, this has been an absolute blast. Yeah, I'm sure we could talk for hours. Um, I always ask kind of two quick questions at the end. Yeah. Um, well, we didn't even talk about writing, but you are a writer. Uh, <laughs> and you're an L.A. dude. Um, what you- paperback in June. That'll be my plug. Our, our second book comes out in June and paperback. So it's Good. And then you answer the question, where do people or what bookstores you like to rep? You an L.A. guy? Any any spots? Oh, like, yeah. Record stores. Yeah. Oh, both. Um, bookstores. I love Book Soup. Uh, which is out there in Hollywood across from the old Tower Records. There's a used bookstore called The Iliad that I love a whole lot. Um, and there's just, I mean, San Francisco. I mean, you got City Lights, which is just the greatest bookstore in the world. What did they do with the old Tower Records? Because there's an old Tower Records in SF, and I think they turned it into a gym. Yeah, it's been, it's been, um, it's painted back to the old, it's got the Tower sign on it. Gibson bought the building. Oh, sweet. And then I heard sold the building. So it's been, it's still painted like Tower Records, but it's vacant still vacant. I hope someone opens a record store. And as far as record stores, I mean, Los Angeles, Freak Beat, Indianapolis, Luna, Good Records in Dallas, 1234 in Oakland, which is just a fucking badass store in Oakland. And they got a spot in the Mission in SF, too. 1234? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. I've been yeah, to the book event at the one, and I just... I. So I, I do my all my record shopping online. I order from all, but I love again Green Day. People love even if, the, if even if people don't like their music, people in the Bay Area love Green Day because oh, those dudes Green are Day. always repping the Bay. They're fucking pumping money into it. They're playing sh- like Billy Joe. And, you know, they'll they'll tweet and they'll be playing a club show in Oakland at like midnight. You know, wearing masks and shit. And you know, it, it, they're the shit. I love Green yeah. Day. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of those guys. Yeah, and most definitely. And uh, you're obviously we we linked up through Instagram, social media, all that shit. What uh, where are people going to find you? How can they get in touch? Oh, uh, it's at DeSavia. and then I, I I did have at DeSavia's Twitter too. And then during the whole Trump uh, mess, I couldn't stand Twitter and 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 just to hear his writing. So I got off Twitter. So then someone stole my name. So now I'm T DeSavia okay. on Twitter. So they stole my thing, but I'm usually at DeSavia clubhouse, wherever I could get that. And luckily I have an uncommon name. So I just use my last name everywhere. Most definitely. Well, maybe we'll catch a show at the Palladium one time, Tom. I like that, man. Dude, love it, man. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your night, dude. Good to meet you, brother. Take care, man. Beautiful. Thank you, brother. That was fun. Oh, without a doubt, man. Yeah, I mean, I released the, I'll probably in a couple of weeks, you know, it's just whatever. Whatever. Um, and I'll shoot you all the links. But thanks for taking the time, man. Yeah. Good to meet you, man. Thanks without for having me. Without a doubt, dude. Enjoy the night, brother. Right on, brother. You too, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.